Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Hi, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. I'm helping Sean out on this edition of The Hub Dialogues. Actually, to be honest, I'm kind of pushing Sean out of the way because the guest today is someone who I really admire. He is my kind of go-to thinker on global economics, on how we should think about the big issues roiling our economy and the world economy. His name is Mohammed El Aryan. He was the former chief executive officer of PIMCO, the world's largest bond fund. He's the chief economic advisor today to Allianz, one of Europe's largest asset managers with over a trillion dollars invested globally. And he's the president of Queen's College, Cambridge. Mohamed Alarian joins me on this Hub Dialogue to talk about his new book, Permacrisis. It's a far-reaching look at how the world is responding to a series of shocks from the great financial crisis through to today's confrontation with inflation and affordability. We're going to unpack all of Mohamed Alarian's thinking on permacrises, the state of future of the global economy, inflation, and yeah, a little Federal Reserve macro policy I can't resist. So the next voice you'll hear is mine in conversation with Mohamed Alarian. Mohamed Alarian, welcome to the Hub Dialogues. Well, I want to begin by having you talk a bit about what are the factors that are driving this permacrisis, the title of your book. What is it? And I wonder if you could respond to my sense that we are living through a moment of accelerating crises. It's not simply that we have more of them, but it's that they seem to be coming closer together. At least that's my feeling. Let's hear your thoughts. Yes, and, and that feeling is, is, is real because one of the issues you face when you lose resilience, and we have lost human resilience, institutional resilience, financial resilience, is that your ability to absorb a hit goes down. So you can't get up as quickly. So you're more vulnerable to adverse shocks. Look, we kept on peeling the onion. And, and that's the wonderful thing about meeting with the same people We kept on peeling the onion, peeling the onion, peeling the onion, asking what's behind it, what's behind it. And we believe that we came up with three issues that explain not all of the crises, but were common in the vast majority of them. And the first one is the inability to grow in an inclusive manner that also respects the planet. That's problem number one. We've lost that ability to deliver economic prosperity, and that has massive economic, social, and financial implications. Two is 
the pattern of repeated policy mistakes, that it, we make things worse uh, by the way we respond to the shock. And three was the lack of global cooperations on problems that need common action that no single country can solve. And these three factors are present in most of the crises we've had. And then it becomes, how can you address all three? And the hopeful part of the book is that all three can be addressed in a way that doesn't deliver immediate prosperity, but changes that direction of travel. Well, let's talk about these kind of three legs to the rickety stool that we all feel like we're standing on that you've just elucidated. And the first is this absence of what you've characterized in the book and elsewhere in a lot of your public commentary as inclusive growth. Um, you know the arguments. There's a sense of growing economic inequality, an unequal or unfair distribution of society's wealth, capital um, within liberal democracies uh, across the, the West, conspicuous rent-seeking by corporations and increasingly powerful non-democratic entities in our society, largely corporations, uh, algamations of capital. Talk to us a bit more about the problem of inclusive growth, but also where the seeds are to begin to return. I don't know if it's a return, Mohammed, in your mind, or a, this is something different, something new that could be achieved in a not so distant future. So what you said is absolutely right. As, as Michael Spence, who was um, the chair of the Growth Commission and has a very unique understanding of growth dynamics puts it, we lost sight of two things. We lost sight of equity and we lost sight of climate sustainability. So whether you look at the domestic side or you look at the global side being globalization, we pursued this thinking that equity and um, sustainability would somehow be solved on their own. And that proved to be a big mistake for society. And the consequences of that was inequality went up. The consequence of that was the share of profits in the total pie went up significantly. And the world, started marginalizing people, both at the domestic level and the global level. And what happens when you're marginalized is you're alienated, you're angry, and then you start getting these outcomes that are problematic at the domestic level, and then you started getting greater tensions between nations at the global level. So the inability to grow in an inclusive manner that respects our planet is absolutely critical to understanding why we tend to have these perma crises and what to, what to do about them. The seeds uh, have been provided by us. And this is the exciting element, is that we have three major transformations that are ongoing and that will accelerate. And they offer the potential of change in the dynamics because at the heart of them, is labor augmentation. They augment labor. They make labor more productive. The first one is the technology and particularly the generative AI transformations. The second one is in the life sciences. 
and the third one is in the green transition. And all three can be the basis of a new growth model that results in more prosperity, that is more equally shared, and that is sustainable from the planet's perspective. But we stress this is not in the next two years. Unfortunately, the next two years are going to be really tough. But if we get our act together now, it means that thereafter we, we, we can hope for and hopefully deliver much better outcomes. Mohammed, you would know uh, better than most because you were there at the heart of um, the 2008-09 great financial crisis, leading one of the world's largest bond funds. The response to that crisis, how it played out, uh, the, the seeming mantra of privatizing profits and socializing risk as a solution to a big crisis has created a lot of skepticism on the part of voting publics, on the part of many members of the so-called elite who would agree with you, all these issues, generative AI, the life sciences, uh, the potential ability of greening of our economy to fundamentally transform growth and make it more inclusive. But Mohammed, aren't we working, pushing against this kind of deficit of trust around how institutions, governments, and decision makers behaved during and after the great financial crisis? Yes, we are. And, and that, that takes us immediately to the second issue, which is disappointment in policymakers. Um, I remember coming out of the global financial crisis, trying to convey to, to policymakers that what had hit us wasn't a cyclical shock. It was a secular shock, a structural shock, and that we have to think long-term and think structurally. And that was dismissed as being narrow-minded because after all, the, the industrial world, the advanced countries live in cyclical space, the developing countries that live in structural space, but that proved to be wrong. And policymakers, by using the notion of the three Ts, you need timely responses, yes, you do. You need targeted responses, yes, you do. But then the view was they should be temporary because the system will, will, will adjust. Ended up with the problem you've actually said, we socialized the losses and we didn't fundamentally change um, what was ailing us, which is the inability to grow. So policy trust is really important to restore. And the first thing that you have to do, and that a few policymakers have done around the world, but not enough, is to own your mistakes. Because if you continue to deny your mistakes when they are clear for everybody to see, then people will not trust you in terms of your ability to deliver better outcomes. So, so we go through examples where some have owned their mistakes, Others are just refusing to own their mistakes. And that makes a huge difference in terms of credibility going forward. Well, let's talk about what some people might consider the biggest and most recent mistake and maybe the latest crisis, which was this uh, surge run-up in inflation that was allowed to happen by uh, many of the world's leading central banks, including the U.S. federal Reserve. You were out early warning about the threats of inflation, um, yet the Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, continued to flood markets with liquidity, continued to engage in 
quantitative easing or the large scale purchases of different you know debt instruments to reduce borrowing costs. Again, Mohammed, there's a I'm, I'm struggling with my my just my uh, my lived experience of the last you know 14, 15 years, which is here again another crisis and a response by the institutions who are arguably the most independent, the least contaminated with the short-term thinking of politics. And Mohammed, isn't it true that especially the U.S. Federal Reserve really f failed initially in, in the test of this crisis of inflation? It absolutely failed. And I've been often accused of being too critical of, of the Fed in particular. Um, the Fed plays a very important role in the global economy, as you know, because the dollar is the reserve currency, because the U.S. intermediates other people's savings, and because the U.S. has such a voice in multilateral institutions. So when you see the world's most powerful central bank committing six mistakes, six analysis, forecasting, action, supervision, communication, and accountability. Six mistakes, most of which they haven't owned up to. Um, it is a problem. In analysis, they, they got stuck um, on this inflation is transitory. And I can tell you, transitory is an incredibly dangerous word in the policymaking. Because the minute I tell you something is transitory, I'm conveying to you it is temporary and reversible. I'm telling you, don't worry about it. Look through it. And therefore, we lose precious time to deploy first best actions. And the Fed for most of 2022, despite quite a few of us saying, look at the data, listen to what companies are telling you, got stuck on this narrative of transitory. Its forecasts were consistently wrong. Its actions were late. They were late, A, because they got stuck into the wrong narrative, but B, because they looked at their models, which didn't capture a fundamental change in the structural economy. Their supervision was awful. That's why we had a banking crisis in March of 2023. Their communication has added volatility rather than repressed volatility. And finally, their accountability has been weak, which is why their credibility is at play. So, so there is a fundamental problem. Now, if you look at the central bank community as a whole, there are best practices that are not being implemented consistently. One of the issues is the lack of cognitive diversity. There's a reason why the Fed fell into groupthink. Why not adopt the Bank of England's model where two people on your policymaking committee come from outside? Accountability. Why not adopt the Bank of England's model where the actual votes are being shown? So in the last Bank of England meeting, for example, the decision was 6-3, which gives you a sense of the discussion. Um, supervision, forecasting, all these things, if you look around, we have, we have good practices that have stood the test of time that are just not being implemented. And, th and that brings in the hubris element. The, the unwillingness to own your mistakes and learn from them and, and adjust accordingly. So you have this ridiculous situation today where the Fed is operating with the wrong monetary framework. It's made for a world of insufficient demand when we're living in a world of insufficient supply. And there is a, there's more debate 
and this debate is going to increase as to whether it has the right inflation target on that. So I completely agree with you. But the important thing is to look around the world and try to understand how we fix this, because otherwise, these mistakes repeat themselves. And especially when you lack cognitive diversity, you will make mistakes. Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Just to stay on on a financial topic for a moment, because it is really of the moment, we're seeing this incredible uh, surge in longer duration bonds um, across advanced economies. It's come as a bit of a surprise uh, in the last few months. There are indications that it may be part of a new normal, um, higher structural borrowing costs as things like term premiums and other things revert back to their pre-great financial crisis kind of norms. Is this a crisis brewing, uh, Mohammed? Do you think that the surge in yields will turn into something that could be the a next shoe to drop in the permacrisis that we're living through? And if it is, if there is that risk, and you think this could be a long-term feature now of the global economy, a heavily indebted global economy, what do we do about it? So, you know, it's interesting because we're going back to levels of interest rates that were normal before the global financial crisis. And the problem we have is that people believe the abnormal was normal. So people believe that central banks were pressing interest rates and flooring them at zero, or in the case of the ECB, negative levels was normal. People believe that central banks flooding the system repeatedly with money was normal. That, that was abnormal. So we're going back to something that's normal. The way we've done it is the issue that raises the risks you mentioned. Think of four act play. Act one was last year when central banks had to move very aggressively because they were scrambling to catch up with inflation dynamics. So we got the most aggressive and concentrated set of rate increases that we have seen for decades. That didn't need to be. It was the result of the mischaracterization of inflation as transitory. So shock number one came in terms of central bank action. Shock number two, which was for most of the first half of 2023, came in the form of a recognition that central banks would stay high for long. And that meant that you, you had to reflect the higher interest rate throughout the structure. So you saw long rates go up. Act number three is what's going to play out in next year, which is the question mark are there enough buyers for U.S. Treasuries? We're seeing a massive increase in U.S. Treasury issuance. We're seeing deficits running at 6 7% of GDP. We have, we have bonds that are being refinanced at three times what they cost before. And that is all raising the question, who's going to buy it? The Fed can no longer buy Treasuries because it has to deal with inflation. There's a question mark as to China's willingness to buy treasuries, Japan's ability to buy treasuries, and institutional investors are sitting on really big losses. So that's the question out there. What are the implications? History, unfortunately, is not very encouraging here. 
when we've had instances of these rapid moves, especially when central banks have been late and are playing catch up, they tend to break something. And two things can break the economy by pushing it into recession because people can't re afford to refinance their mortgages because credit card debt becomes just overwhelming because companies cannot refinance themselves cheaply. So you end up pushing an economy into a recession. And then the second risk is the financial system. And we came very close to this in March of 2023 when we had three bank failures, community banks. And the only reason we didn't have more is because the US changed its policies. The US decided to guarantee all deposits at those banks. And once you do it for the Silicon Valley Bank in particular, that's viewed as banking for the rich, for the startups, for tech, if any other bank falls into problems, you will have to do it for them. So we avoided more banking crises by actually being forced into a change that most people would have rather not seen happen. So those are the risks for 2024. You know, in my writings in 2022 and 2023, when there was a huge view that the US was gonna go into recession, I kept on saying there is no reason for the US to go into recession in 2023. The economy is fundamentally sound. We just need to avoid a policy mistake. For 2024, I'm not so sure anymore. I've become more concerned that we may slip into a much lower growth outcome um, because of the cumulative effects of all these interest rate increases. Fascinating. Do you see in that scenario inflation as less of a risk, something that takes a backseat, a, a moment, um, an episode in the PERMA crisis that moves stage left and issues of, of growth, uh, deficits, uh, the kind of fiscal sustainability of public expenditures kind of move center stage? So I think that's happening. And issues of the funding rather than sustainability, the funding of deficits and of refinancing is going to capture the market's attentions for a while. On the inflation issue, it fundamentally comes down to the following choice that I believe the Fed will face. Do you continue to pursue a 2% inflation target? That's arbitrary to begin with and risk crushing the economy. Or do you accept for now a slightly higher inflation rate called 3% and see whether it's stable and whether we can live with it? That's the choice that the Fed is going to be confronted with. I hope that they recognize that the world has changed, that we live not in a world of insufficient demand, but in a world of insufficient supply, and that the supply side isn't flexible enough, and that they will tolerate inflation running slightly above, which I believe will be a stable situation. Why? Because if you try to, to reduce it more, you risk not only an economic accident, but a financial accident. Look, there are things going on that we all know about. A critical energy transition. That's inherently inflationary. We have supply chains that are being rewired for geopolitical reason. What is called nearshoring and friendshoring. That's inherently inflationary. Companies 
are now putting emphasis on resilience and not just efficiency. They're building more slack in the supply chains. That's inherently inflationary. And then we have in certain markets, labor shortages. That's inherently inflation. So if you look, if you were setting an inflation target for today and tomorrow, you wouldn't set yesterday's inflation target. But I'm the first to recognize that if you're a central bank and you've missed on delivering your inflation target, you're not going to be in any hurry to change it explicitly. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca what muhammad could be the risk is your book permacrisis you're trying to think through the implications of policy making if we were to reset our inflation targets to three percent some would say, and you, you've been active in this debate, so you you know the other side well, that this would fundamentally erode the credibility of the, the Fed. It would accelerate inflation expectations. It would, in a sense, create that feedback loop of inflation that was so destructive in the 1970s. And it could have big knock-on effects in terms of the U.S. currency as the global reserve currency and people's perceptions of it, not as a unit of exchange, but as a store of value. So I say that risk is there, but that risk pales in comparison to the other possibility that we've got the wrong inflation rate. If you try to run an economy at an inflation rate that is below its natural inflation rate, then you're going to sacrifice livelihoods and you're going to hit the poor particularly hard. Look, we have to remember where the 2% inflation rate came from. New Zealand in the early 90s decided to run a pilot a pilot of inflation targeting. It picked 2% out of the air. There was no scientific. 2% was viewed as high enough from zero so that you don't get stuck in what's called the, the lower bound problem, but not too high so you wouldn't destabilize inflation expectations. Next thing we know, as more and more countries started shifting to inflation target, that 2% became the norm. Now, it's as if I tell you that regardless of what, how tall we are, we're all going to have the same inflation target, the same weight target. Now, if I set the weight target high enough, then sure, we'd all agree to that. And the 2% was high enough because we were bringing in so much supply onto the system, globalization, China, Eastern and Central Europe more and more people are coming in and the supply side was inherently deflationary. That has ended. So now the weight limit for all of us is binding. And someone who is six or seven feet tall may have a different weight than some level than someone who's four feet tall or five feet tall. So we, we have to think about 
where this thing came from. But I understand the hesitation. I, I really do. But it's the same hesitation that got us into all sorts of other problems. Is this inability to be broad-minded. And, you know, the behavioral scientists will tell you that that's not surprising. If I take you out of your comfort zone, there are three behavioral mistakes you're likely to make. The first one's called a blind spot. You don't even recognize you're out of your comfort zone. You don't even want to debate the issue. Um, you just have a complete blind spot. And some of us are born with blind spots. And we need mechanisms to get over them. Just like when you get into your modern car these days, there's a little light that comes onto your review mirror to tell you there's a car in your blind spot. It doesn't deny your blind spot. It helps to identify your blind spot. The second issue, and, and married couples tend to do this, is to reframe things. You hear something that's not comfortable, so you reframe it to something that's comfortable. And we tend to do that, but we lose sight of what issue. So I tell you the 2% is not the, the right target, and you come back to me and say, well, we can't possibly change the target because 2% is, is somehow God-given. Or I tell you we have a risk of recession, and you tell me, don't worry, we're short and shallow. Or I tell you we have an inflation problem, you tell me it's transitory. All that reframes, but loses sight of what is the issue. The third one is the one that is most dangerous. And it explains why successful companies fail. It's called active inertia. I, you suddenly are in a different paradigm. You recognize it. That's the active part. You recognize it. And yet, there's so much inertia in the system, you're unable to adjust to it. The big example that comes from Don Sullivan at MIT is IBM on the eve of the PC revolution. I would have bet on IBM. They had the brand in technology. They had the biggest research and development budget, and they were incredibly profitable. His work has shown that the board and management identified the disruption of the PC and understood what to do. And yet, two years later, IBM was almost bankrupt. Why? Because middle management did not understand the reorientation. The less politically correct example, and I can say it because I carry an American passport, is an American tourist in Paris. Goes up to a French person, asks something in English. The French person either doesn't understand English or doesn't want to understand English. Shrugs their shoulder. The most likely response of the tourist is to say the same thing in English, but louder. The louder bit is the active. The inertia bit is you're still saying it in English. So we've got to recognize that when paradigm changes, behavioral traps can really be problematic. And that's why I, I, you'll hear me go over and over again to keep an open mind, have a lot of cognitive diversity, and have a risk management mindset. Ask the question, not I am right, and I'm sure I'm going to write, and this is what's going to happen, but what if you're wrong? Central banks ask the question, what if we're wrong in rushing to the conclusion that inflation is transitory? They would have done something different, but they never asked that question. They were so sure of their call. There's the world uh, as we want it and the world as we receive it. And it seems like many institutions um, sometimes have a difficulty in accepting the latter, can sometimes challenge the former. Mohammed, what, what would be you know, the investment theses that might flow from a 
a reframing of the inflation target to 3%. I mean, that would suggest to me that, you know, a bear market in bonds might continue for some time because there would be a need to readjust to uh, a higher R star, a different perception of the, the run rate uh, that central banks are going to allow the economy to operate at. Do you have any, have you thought through what a, what the investable world would look like with 3% inflation targeting across the advanced economies? Yes. So, so when, when we look at, at what matters for us as investors, um, it is the expected return. It's the volatility because volatility often forces you to do silly things. And it is correlation, the ability to have risk mitigation in your portfolio. When you deconstruct these issues, it ultimately comes down to three what they call risk factors. Can you manage interest rate risk? Can you manage credit risk, the extreme of which is default, where you lose everything? And can you manage liquidity risk, which means your ability to do something when you want to do it? Because if you can't do what you want to do, um, you'll end up doing something else that is far, far from optimal. So if we acknowledge that we can run the system at a slightly higher inflation rate that is stable, there may be some inflation risk, but you reduce credit risk and liquidity risk. And inflation and, and interest rate risk is recoverable over time because your, your bonds don't default. That's why a lot of banks, for example, are holding loss-making bonds in their hold-to-maturity bucket because there is no question about the principal getting repaid. If, however, it turns out you are targeting a, an inflation rate that's too low and you push the economy into recession, then you're going to cause credit risk to spike and liquidity risk to spike. So... That those are much harder to manage, as we discovered um, over and over again over time. So yes, there are implications. I think the major implication for investors is the recognition that the golden days are over. You know, when a central bank floors interest rates at zero and injects liquidity, it will push up every asset. The example I use is what used to happen when I was at PIMCO in the investment committee, someone would come forward with an investment proposal, invest in this company, invest in this country. They would be pushed very hard on balance sheet resilience, management, market outlook, everything you'd expect. And assume that they satisfactorily convince the investment committee on every single one of these. It was necessary, but not sufficient, because I would be asked one more question. Who will buy after us? Now, the subsequent buy is very important because the subsequent buyer first validates your own purchase, pushes the price up, and brings other people in. But also, the subsequent buyer provides liquidity in case you have to change your mind. And we change our minds for many reasons. So if I tell you the subsequent buyer is a central bank with a printing press in the basement, infinite willingness to use it. And guess what? They're non-commercial. They don't care about the price. They'll buy at any price. You will end up taking a hell of a lot more risk than you would have otherwise, which means that all asset prices get pushed up. And that's the golden age we lived in. 
It didn't matter whether you owned equity, bonds, everything went up in price. Why? Because there's so much liquidity, because the subsequent buyer was seemingly an infinite buyer. That's why the notion of a BFF caught up. The central banks are your best friends forever. But that has all changed now. So I also think we need to adjust to the fact that we did live through a golden age. And that golden age had consequences, which is the inflation and the sense of malaise we're dealing with now. Let's end, Mohammed, just on the third leg of that stool that we've been discussing throughout this uh, interview, your book, Permacrisis, A Plan to Fix a Fractured World. And that's international coordination, the importance of understanding that while the world is now increasingly being divided into blocks and the rivalry between China and the United States accelerates, you and your co-authors believe that returning to the work of multilateralism, restoring some muscle to the big uh, international agencies and institutions that provide global governance and coordination is just essential to finding our way out of this perpetual permacrisis. Yes, and we have, we have Gordon Brown really to thank for framing and, and, and really advancing our understanding on these issues. Look, we are no longer in a world of uber-globalization. And we did live through a world of the 90s, the 2000s, where a world in which we somehow believed that ever closer financial and economic integration was the road forward and will go on for a very long time. But as we discussed earlier, we lost sight of equity and sustainability. So we're not going back to that world. But we can avoid a world of total fragmentation by going to a model which we call managed globalization light. So it's not the globalization. And you hear politicians say, we will compete here, but we'll cooperate here. Or you hear them say, we will de-risk, but we will not decouple. That's the concept of managed globalization light, where we agree on common issues that require common solutions and common action, and where we have functioning institutions that support this process, which is the revamping of the IMF, the World Bank, and the WTO in particular. All this is feasible. It requires political will. And, 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 and we, we believe that if, if countries understand that you can have a managed globalization light model, that that political will will be more forthcoming than it has so far. Because the alternative of a completely fragmenting world is a lose-lose-lose proposition. And not only is it lose-lose-lose for now, it's also lose-lose-lose for the future. Thank you, Mohamed Alarian, for coming on the Hub Dialogues. I really appreciated our conversation today. I urge all of our listeners, grab a copy of Permacrisis Now. It's a fascinating read, some really important insights, as you just heard from our conversation with Mohammed. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, 
come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support. And we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.